Open your Bibles with me to Exodus 12:29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks, on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought with them out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, All the hosts of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful that we're here together. It's been a week since we've worshipped corporately and we have needed to be together. A lot has happened in a week in all of our lives. There has been death within our church family. There's been um, temptations that we've had to fight. There's been discouragements. There's been victories. There's just been life that's happened over the last number of days. And so we, we pray now that you would come, Holy Spirit, and speak to us because we need a word from you. We we need to hear from you so we can fight better. We need to hear from you so we can sing and rejoice more effectively. And we need to hear from you because our eternal destinies hang in the balance by what we do with what is in this text today. So help us, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, meet with us and be exalted, Christ. We pray this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we come to a conclusion of our second little mini-series on the book of Exodus. We've been looking at uh, chapter 7 to 12, and today we finally get to the moment when Israel finally gets out of Egypt. It's been a glorious journey to be able to see the ten plagues, to be able to see the way in which God not only delivers His people, gets them out of Egypt, but He does it through strong acts of judgment, and in particular acts of judgment that are meant to say, your gods are nothing. And the God of Israel, Yahweh, He is God. It's also been thrilling to be able to look at the um, various connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And my guess is that you, like me, have been amazed at how many parallels there are from Exodus to the New Testament. I mean, if you just look at it, 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 it's, it's very obvious that you can see the way in which God is um, setting the foundations for things that will come up in the New Testament, from the concept of the blood of the Lamb to the idea of what it means for people to be delivered and to be redeemed. This, this idea of connecting the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, is a, an area of study. It's called biblical theology. And if you like this connection between the old and the new, you're going to love what's coming up next weekend with our Think Conference. The professor who's going to be here, Dr. James Hamilton, is an expert in this area of biblical theology, and he's going to help us understand how our story fits into the overall story of the entire Bible. And so don't miss this opportunity Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to be a part of the uh, conference that's uh, coming up. I, I promise you, your eyes will be open in an even fuller and maybe even more significant way to the big picture story of what God is doing in the Bible. So after Think, we're going to take a break from Exodus for a couple weeks, and then we'll resume Exodus after Easter. And between um, Think and Easter, we're going to spend a couple weeks talking about something that I mentioned at the first of the year. I shared with you in a sermon called Our Vision for Maturity that as a church we want to focus on discipleship this year and really for the next number of years, and in particular, the area of personal evangelism. And so right after Think, I'm going to preach three sermons on the resurrected gospel, how to bring back our message and our passion for the gospel. And I don't want to guilt you into sharing your faith, but I want to cast a renewed vision of what it means to be bold with our witness. All of that leading up to Easter, and I'm hoping and praying that you'll use Easter Sunday as an opportunity to bring somebody along who's a a spiritual seeker, if you will, someone who's trying to figure things out spiritually, and that you invite them to come along with you. As we go through the next couple weeks, talk about evangelism, there's a little prayer that I want you to pray, and it goes like this. Lord, would you open a door? Would you open my mouth? And would you open their heart? Isn't that good? I didn't write that. That's why I can say that. So I'm not not asking for a compliment, okay? So open a door. God, as I start my day today, would you open a door? And when that door comes, God, would you help me to open my mouth? And then when I open my mouth, I'm going to trust you. You're going to open a heart. Open their heart. You know, church, as um, as the eldership and as uh, pastors, we, we want to help you grow spiritually. And we believe that one of the best ways to help you grow spiritually is for you to take the risky step of opening your mouth about what it means for you to love the gospel and to love Jesus. And uh, so that's what we're, what we're going to be working on leading up to Easter. And then we'll go back into um, Exodus after that. This morning, though, we're drawing to, co- to close this uh, little section that we've been in, as I said before, this uh, second mini-series, and we've been seeing the way in which God has delivering, is delivering his people, and in particular, today we see how he delivers them through death. He delivers them through the death of the firstborn. This is a culmination of the ten plagues, it's a culmination of... The fulfillment of God's promises, and as Israel comes out of Egypt, they are now marked with a new relationship with their God. And like so many other parts of Exodus, this section as well has some very important lessons that are formed and framed in Exodus, but then have a trajectory, they have an arc that goes all the way into the new. So I want to talk to you this morning about five different lessons that we see in this text and that are also found in the New Testament. Here's the first one. The first thing that we see in the passage in front of us today is a tragic divide. And that divide is between those who have faith in the blood put on the doorposts 
and those who do not have faith and are therefore under judgment. The division is between those who are covered in a blood-covered house, if you will, and protected from judgment, and those who didn't believe and therefore are under judgment. And in the case of the death of the firstborn, we see very clearly these two classes or these two groups of people. It's a dangerous thing to be on the wrong side of a holy, powerful God, and we see that clearly in Exodus 12. This is something that God had warned Pharaoh about. He had told him in Exodus 11 that this day was coming. In fact, if you have a copy of God's Word, look at Exodus chapter 11 and verse 4. At the end of the ninth plague, the plague of darkness, God had warned Pharaoh, there's another plague that's coming, and it's going to be severe. He said this, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. So this plague, as predicted, was going to affect every level of society. Whether it was Pharaoh or a handmaid, everyone was going to have somebody in their house that was going to die. But it wasn't just the fact that every household had someone die that was so frightening. It was also the fact that there was a group of people who were not affected by the plague. So God was selective. And that's what made the plague so scary. God warned them about this in verse 7 of chapter 11. It says this, "...but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel." So the idea is there's, there's nothing that's going to threaten Israel either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord has made a distinction between Israel and Egypt. And so the whole point of this plague is not only for God to bring judgment, but there's another effect, there's a double effect on this plague. And that is that God is sending a message. He's sending a message that he comes in judgment, but he also comes in mercy. And there's a tragic divide that happens in this text between those who receive judgment and those who receive mercy. And what I'm going to show you in a moment is this tragic divide is all over the the Bible, particularly the New Testament, and especially in the book of Revelation. That this tragic divide is something that we also have to deal with today. And we see the early formation of this in Exodus. Look at chapter 12 and verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt... This is Exodus 12, 29. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. So this judgment sends a very strong message. On the one hand, you have God who is full of judgment and consequences. On the other hand, a God who protects people and is full of mercy. And the dividing line between which side of the equation you are on as it relates to God entirely depends on what you've done with faith and blood. So if you believe God's word through Moses in Exodus that he was coming and coming in judgment... And if you heard the word that if you killed the Passover lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, you were safe. You were protected. But if you were way too casual, dismissive, didn't believe, and just said, no, that's not going to happen, well, that night was a terrible, tragic night. And the Bible tells us that there was a divide, a dividing line between those who believed and those who didn't. The death of the firstborn was a terrible, tragic moment. But I have to tell you, It's only a foretaste of what is still to come. 
As bad as that night was, there's a worse event coming. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, describes it. Again, if you have a copy of God's Word, look at Revelation 16. If you don't, you can just listen. Revelation 16 tells us of the sort of end of days or the final judgment or or what's going to happen at the end. And it's really interesting that there are parallels between Exodus and Revelation 16. And in the first place, we have these bowls of wrath that God pours out in judgment on the inhabitants of the earth. And interestingly enough, they're very similar to the plagues of Egypt. We have bowls of wrath, for instance, like uh, water being turned to blood. We have sores, uh, skin afflictions, uh, darkness that comes, and, and even hail. In fact, look at the end of chapter 16, verse 21. It says, And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail. The plague was so severe. That's not by accident that that's in the Bible. What happens in Exodus happens again in the book of Revelation. It is this sense that God has come to, to judge the world. But that's, that's not even the worst part. The worst part comes in Revelation chapter 20. Turn over there. Revelation 20 and verse 11. It gives us a a, a sober picture of a coming judgment, another day when there is a, a great divide, a day when the creator of the universe who knows you better than you even know yourself will reveal who you really are. No hiding, no playing games, no excuses, no pretending. No veneer of you're like this with certain people, but you're not with another, or you sing songs in church, but the reality is it's, it's just kind of a show. doesn't matter what kind of family you were raised in or all the things you did growing up that were so-called spiritual acts. In the end of the day, God knows who you are, and in Revelation 20, it becomes evident. Verse 11 says this, Then I saw a great white throne. It's great and it's white because of the purity of the one who is seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. What's he saying? He's saying there's no place you can hide. I mean, this is, this is not just a judge. This is God. And I saw the dead, both great and small, meaning that people from every walks of life, people who had great and famous names, names that you would know, people who are on the news, people in the newspaper, people in the history books, and also small people, people who... Nobody would know their name. People who made all kinds of money. People who made hardly any. People who did horrible, global acts of great wickedness. And people who just did their wickedness in the privacy of their home. There's people all walks of life. That's the point. Nobody escapes from this moment. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Skip ahead to verse 15. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Imagine this moment. The books are open. God knows you better than you know yourself. The the book of works is there recording everything that you've ever done. And the book of works is compared with the book of life. And you've got all of these sins on this side of the column in this book. And then another book is open. And if your name is listed in the book of life, then everything over here is covered with the blood of Christ. Can you imagine the moment as they identify all of the sins on this side and then look for the name and your name's not there. And in that moment, a great divide happens. A divide where once and for all it is evident what should happen because you have all of these sins and your name isn't in the Lamb's book of life. You're not covered under the blood and the effect is divine judgment. This is the dividing line. Not only the dividing line in Exodus, this is the dividing line all throughout the New Testament. It's the dividing line also that happens in the book of Revelation that those who refuse to believe God's word will be condemned and judged. The evidence will be overwhelming in light of the holiness of God and only those who are covered in the Lamb's blood will be safe. That's Exodus. That's Revelation. That's the Bible. That's the Gospel. Phil Riken in his commentary on this passage says this, We will all be there, the high, the low, the rich, the poor, sinners and saints. From the dungeon to the throne, no one will escape. No one will be granted an exemption. No one will receive any special treatment. The rich may travel first class all their lives, but when they get to the final judgment, God will not examine their bank accounts. Nor will the poor have something to, coming to them simply because their lives were more difficult. God is no respecter of persons, and he will judge everyone by the same standard. He does not care what color we are, how much money we have, where we go to school, what company we work for, or even how good we are. What matters to God is whether or not we have faith in the sacrifice of his son. And those who trust in the blood of Christ will receive eternal life, and those who do not hold on to him and to his cross will be finally and fatally lost. The great divide between salvation and damnation is marked in blood. Friends, it's a tragic divide. And on my heart today is this very simple question, which side of the equation are you on? There's, there's no middle of the fence sort of people. You can't be like, well, on Sunday I'm like in Jesus' calm, but on like the rest of the week I'm kind of like in someone else's calm. No, no, no. It's either Jesus all or Jesus none. There, there is no halfway in between. And the question we've got to think through, all of us today, is which side of the ledger are you are we on? And I hope that for some of you today, that today be the very day that you would move from being on the judgment side of the column to being on the forgiveness side of the column. That today, God would just show you and you would say, that's what I need. I need Christ. Secondly, we have this idea of unconditional surrender. Not only do we have a tragic divide, but we also have the breaking of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is now completely beaten. The hardening of his heart, the resisting of his will is finally over. Pharaoh has learned a lesson, but he's learned it the hard way, a way that I hope that you don't have to learn this lesson. It's a lesson that I've seen people learn the hard way, and it is this lesson. God always wins. He does. It's not complicated. God always wins. The story of this Bible, 
from Genesis to Revelation, the story, God wins. And he wins with Pharaoh. Resisting God's will never works out well for human beings. (laughs) And Pharaoh finally comes to a point that he must give up. The overwhelming force of God's power has shattered him as a man, as a father, and as a leader. Verses 31 to 32 tell us what happens. He summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and he said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And then notice this, and bless me also. What a change. No bargaining, no negotiating, no excuses. Pharaoh's a broken man. Notice that he wastes no time in calling Moses and Aaron to come to him after this plague has hit. Notice that this is the first time that Pharaoh actually calls God's people, the people of Israel, before they were his slaves, and now he calls them as they should be called, the people of Israel. Notice also, third, his statement, go and serve the Lord as you have said, is a complete capitulation on Pharaoh's part. He is now completely powerless. And then notice finally, and you, by virtue of just your audible response, you heard it, he amazingly asks Moses to bless him. What a change. Go and serve the Lord, he says. Be gone and bless me also. In other words, Moses, as you're leaving, would you pray for me? What a statement. Would you pray for me? You know, part of the reason why? My guess, could you imagine the guilt on Pharaoh's heart? Here he has resisted the God of the Israelites. He's resisted and resisted and resisted. And now someone in his home is dead. The entire nation is grieving. And who's to blame? Pharaoh is. His advisors told him, let the people go, let them go. But Pharaoh continued to harden his heart and harden his heart and harden his heart. And despite the overwhelming evidence that he was on the wrong side of the equation, Pharaoh refused to repent. He refused to relinquish his pride. And instead, now he is on the wrong side of divine retribution. He is a broken man, pressed by divine circumstances that have now brought him to his knees. Would you bless me also, Moses? It's a stunning statement. tragedy, though, of this moment is that Pharaoh is not the only one who resists God's will. Pharaoh is not unlike many people in the world, and maybe not unlike you or me. You know, there's lots of people who tragically resist God's will. Despite all the warnings, despite all the consequences of things that should be obvious, despite people around them thinking or, or saying out loud, don't you get it, man? Don't you see? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And despite the overwhelming evidence of divine circumstances that are all lining up, the person continues to resist God's authority in their life, or they try to bargain or somehow make deals with God. They, 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 they are under the press of hard circumstances. And you know what Jesus' answer to that problem is? And you may be here today, you want the pain to stop, you want your circumstances to change. You, you may in the last week or the last month or the last year, maybe your entire life, you've just faced bad circumstance after bad circumstances, and you may feel like, you know what, God's trying to get my attention. Newsflash, He is trying to get your attention. And you know what He's calling you to do? Book of Romans says, the goodness of God is leading you to repentance. 
More than a behavior modification, you know what repentance means? It's a gift that God gives where you change your mind about who you are and who he is. It's the aha moment where you realize, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner, he is holy, and I need to change everything about me. And your whole mindset shifts, and then 10 years down the road after you've received Christ, you look back at your life pre-Christ and think in your soul, what in the world was I thinking? Why did I live like that? Why did I pursue that? That was a shallow, pointless existence. I was missing everything. It was right in front of me. That's what repentance is. You suddenly wake up and realize this is not the way to go, and you change your mind. But the second thing that Jesus does, the Bible says, is that he creates new life, or to be born again, or regeneration. When Jesus talked to Nicodemus, he a Pharisee that was trying to figure out what Jesus was all about. He said that you have to be born again. He used that analogy because he wanted Nicodemus to understand that something has to change from the inside out. Something has to happen to you holistically such that you are fundamentally a different person and you can't do it. Only Jesus can. So you know what the prayer of faith is that saves somebody? It's when you come to faith in Jesus and you say, I'm done with me. I can't control and fix my life. I've made a mess of everything and I need you to clean me up, Jesus. I am done with me. That is unconditional surrender. And that is how the gospel comes. Unfortunately, we'll see that Pharaoh doesn't fully embrace this. It's only temporary. He resists God's will yet again. A few weeks ago, I had a man come up to me after a service and tears in his eyes, was moved by what God was doing in his life, very quickly said, hey, I've been gone from church for a long time, and my life has completely been a train wreck. And I'm here today because I need to get, I need to get back on the right track, and I feel so bad for who I am and what I've become. And I said to him, in all seriousness and as prophetic as I could possibly be, I said to him, brother, the fact that you feel bad for where you are is a gift from God and don't you ever take it for granted because this could be the last time that you feel that way. Brothers and sisters, do not presume upon God's mercy to make you feel bad with where you are in life. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a warning That God could very well say, this is it, this is the last time, and after this, you're never going to feel this way ever again, and you will just go down the, the slow and easy slope to the hardness of your heart. Unconditional surrender. That's what we see. Third, we also see undeserved blessings. It's amazing. The focus turns from Pharaoh to Israel from something really negative to something really positive. And we see that Israel left Egypt not just as freed slaves. They left with spoils. Verse 33, The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. Can you imagine this? As they're leaving, they say, Hey, you got anything you could give us on our way? And the people are like, Yeah, get out of here. And they're giving them stuff. Give them gold and clothes and jewelry. The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians 
so that they let them have what they asked, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. That word is a military term. It's what happens when one army beats another. So Israel leaves Egypt, not, get this, not just as delivered slaves. They leave out of that city, out of that nation, as a victorious people. They didn't just walk out, they marched out. And they marched out loaded with the spoils of war. This is a statement not so much about Israel, it's a statement about God. That the gods of Egypt were nothing. It's a statement to say, our God won and your God lost. In fact, Numbers uh, 33 says this, They set out from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the month, on the, first, on the day after the Passover. And listen to this. The people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. They went out, for lack of a better word, in a parade. But notice, they went out while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn Now there's a contrast. So the Egyptians go out in blessing, or the uh, Israelites go out in blessing while the Egyptians are experiencing the worst thing that had ever happened to them. In a New Testament context, you need to know that we also share in the blessings that come from Christ. So the beauty of the new heaven and the new earth is that everything that you're going to experience in the new heaven and earth are all gifts from God. Even the things that you experience today are all gifts from Him. Romans 8, 37 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. But then it says this, Through Him who loved us. We march out of our sin. We march out of the difficulties of life. And the banner that we carry as our flag is Christ and him crucified. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, we're blessed. We have a spiritual inheritance, verse 11. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So there are blessings to the sons of God who in faith come to Christ. Blessings that are completely and totally undeserved. So there's undeserved blessings. Here's the next one. We also have promised deliverance. This is the day that we've been longing for. This is the day we've been waiting for. And what you see in here is just a short little section, but it is in a really, really important statement that the things that God had promised, He made good on. The things that God said He would do, He did. And even though there were dark and dreary days, even though there were 430 years of living in bondage, God was right on His plan and His people were coming out. Verse 37, that day is finally here. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramsey to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. That 600,000, I have a footnote on there, just could be a couple things there. Either the number is intended to be something that we don't fully understand. It could be a literal number. I'm not sure that it is. I, I think perhaps the word thousand, way you could translate that, is um, 600 clans of men. 
um, groups, if you will. The number of Israel probably closer to tens of thousands as opposed to two million at the time. So it says a mixed multitude. We'll talk more about this in a moment. But notice that it wasn't just native-born Israelites who went. There were some people who were convinced that Yahweh was God, and so they went with him. They, they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now what's the point of this passage? The point is this, that... that God made good in his promise. All the way back in Genesis 15, he had told Abraham that one day his people would be captives in a foreign land, and after 400 years they would be set free, and God was making good on a promise he made to Abraham. In Exodus 2, we heard that God had remembered his covenant with Israel. Even though it was dark and dreary, even though people were under bondage, God remembered his covenant. And all throughout the book of Exodus, we've seen God say over and over and over that he was going to deliver his people. He was going to deliver his people. He was going to deliver his people. And even through very difficult circumstances, when, when Pharaoh took straw away and doubled their labors, when he blamed Moses and Aaron for the plagues, when the people were concerned that Moses and Aaron weren't really working for them, but working against them. And this of all of those dark days, God was still on target to fulfill his promise. And this promise-keeping moment will become a reference point for Israel for the rest of their lives. They'll leave Egypt with nothing in terms of food or provisions. They'll have lots of gold, but they won't have anything to eat. And they're going to be tested about whether or not they can trust God for daily manna and for, for water to drink. And what they're going to have to wrestle with, like you and I have to wrestle with, if God has been true in the big things, can he also be true in the small things? If God can be faithful in the large things, like our eternal destiny, and keeping his promise, can he be trusted in all areas? God is a promise-keeping God. He was worthy of their trust. I can imagine that some of you have had people in your lifetime that have really disappointed you. They said, I promise. And they didn't keep their promise. Maybe it was a a marriage. Maybe it was a mom or a dad. I promise I'll always be here for you. And that worked till you are like 15. Maybe it was a friend. I promise I got your back. And then they became a practical Judas. I remember when we were um, we were foster parents, we had this sweet little girl in our home, and her birthday was coming up, and she went to visit with her dad, and he told her that he was going to, for her birthday, bring her a Dora birthday cake. She came back from her visitation. She said, my daddy told me that for my birthday, he's going to bring me a Dora birthday cake, and he said he promised. And I remember telling Sarah, man, I hope this guy makes good in this thing. And I'll never forget the day that we sent her off with the social worker. It was her birthday, and she came back, walked in the house, and I looked at her, and she just shook her head. wasn't there. Went up to her bedroom. I remember sitting on the couch with my wife, just so grieved that somebody could make a promise and then not keep it. And I'll tell you, when life goes south like that, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, you know where the floor of that thing is? The floor of that is God always keeps his promise. 
He never abandons us. Like we already sung today, wasn't a great song that Eric and his team led us in, that you never walk alone. Never. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't need any other. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are what? With me. You are never alone. Believing that God keeps his promise, that's the essence of how you come to faith in Christ in the first place. You believe that God's going to make good on the promise that he says in like Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Coming to faith in Jesus means I believe that I'm going to receive Jesus. So when I see you, and if you were to say to me, why should I let you into heaven? My answer is because you said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm in Christ Jesus. My name is in your book. And I believe your word. You put your life, your eternal destiny in the hands of God's promise-keeping ability. It also means, friends, that you live this way every single day. It means that you believe. All things work together for good to those who know you and love you, Romans 8. And you bank your life on that promise. You bank your life that His mercies are new every morning. If you're going to bed at night and you used up all God's grace for that day, you're worn out physically, mentally, and spiritually. And I've prayed before, had my wife pray for me, honey, pray that God's mercy is new tomorrow because it better be. And wake up and sure enough, his mercy is new every morning. You trust God that temptations will not overwhelm you or crush you. And you believe his word that although this is a strong temptation, I don't have to do this. Your word tells me I don't have to go here. You believe his promise that you don't need to worry because God loves you and cares for you. If he takes care of birds and grass, he's surely going to take care of you. And the promise, and I love this one, is that there is always, there's there's never more trouble in one day than what God allows. The Bible says sufficient for each day is the trouble thereof. Meaning, God never allows things to be so bad, so awful, that it will absolutely crush you and you've run out of grace. Now you may get to the last moment of your day before you just fall asleep and the grace meter went, and then you fall asleep. And you wake up the next day and it's there again. Fresh mercy, fresh grace. The point is you never go into grace deficit ever because God always, always, always keeps his promises. And finally, we have this notion of spiritual identity, which is just really cool. So, in verses 43 to 50, we have the celebration of the Passover. And and what happens here is we have this mixed multitude. Remember, I talked about that before. And now they're going to celebrate the Passover. And some of them are national-born Israelites, and some have just come along because they believe that, that, that Yahweh God is the real God. So what do you do with Passover, and what do you do with the Feast of Unleavened Bread? And God gives instructions, and in these instructions we learn something really important. He says, verse 43, or verse 48 rather, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. In other words, it didn't matter if you're a national-born Israelite or not, as long as you embrace the mark of God's covenant, loyalty, and ownership of your life, you could participate in the Passover. In other words, there's a, something even more important than just being a part of Israel. There's a sense of being a part of the spiritual identity of Israel. 
He says, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, meaning God will consider him to be like he's a national-born Israelite, even though he's not, if he has the mark of ownership. And then he says this, there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. In other words, there's this central thing that defines all these people. They may have come from different walks of life. They may have been slaves. Some of them may have been free. Some may have even been Egyptians for all we know. But what happened in that moment is suddenly they all have a new spiritual identity. It's a beautiful thing. The spiritual reality, the spiritual identity would now trump Everything about them. In the New Testament, the closest picture we have to this is believer's baptism. When a person is baptized, it communicates that you have received a new spiritual identity. Going down in the waters of baptism symbolizes that your old you has been buried and you're coming out of that water and it is a bold proclamation that I am a new creature in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come, and everything that I have is because of Jesus whose death, burial, and resurrection I emulate in going in these waters and coming out. The waters of baptism testify that your identity is now fundamentally marked by the death, burial, and resurrection. It triumphantly declares, I have been delivered. That's why baptismal services are so important and why images of them are so significant. I was going through some pictures of baptism and I just found myself worshiping as I looked at this image of this wonderful girl coming out of the water, hand on her heart, I have been delivered. And as well, this picture here, there's a huge story behind this. There's a, two miracles right there, one of healing and one of spiritual deliverance coming out of that water saying, I have been delivered. You see, the reality is being a part of the spiritual Identity that is ours in Christ means that you know that without Him, you'd be in big trouble. And that because of Christ, there is now this new identity over you, this new reality that communicates, I'm no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. I've been set free. I've been delivered. Our text ends with a beautiful but very simple statement. I want you to read this together with me out loud. On that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Such a simple sentence, isn't it? But it is so important. God brought them out of Egypt. Egypt. He kept his promise. He did it through a lamb. He brought them out with great acts of deliverance. He said to the Egyptians, your gods are nothing. I am the creator God. The whole world will know who I am. God brought his people out of Egypt, not only to rescue them, but to make much of his own name and his own glory, such that we can triumphantly say at the end of this section, Exodus 7 to 12, our God is a God who delivers his people always, forever, eternally, and permanently through Christ. Our God is a God who delivers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have purchased deliverance for us through 
your death and have made it possible for us to walk in newness of life. Lord, I pray today for people who are trying to decide and figure out which side of the ledger they're going to be on in regards to this tragic divide. And my guess is there are some who you have brought hard consequences into their life in order to get their attention. And I I pray for them today that they would hear and listen and respond today. No more waiting, no more arguing, no more bargaining, just absolute, complete, and total surrender. That's it. I'm moving today. And Lord, for those of us who can remember the moment when we moved and became a follower of yours, when we became a Christian, oh, would you help us to cling to your promises when life gets hard, when things are confusing, when people break promises. Thank you that you never do and that we can anchor our heart to yours knowing that you're a God who always delivers your people. You always win. And even though there are times when it's dark and it seems like we're losing, even seems like you're losing sometimes, we know that at the end of the day, it's not the case. You win. We long for that day to come. So give us faith to believe that you are a God who always delivers your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have some folks up here afterwards who would love to either answer some questions if you have any today to pray with you if there's something going on in your life so if you're hurting or you got some questions or just need someone to pray for you they're here to bless and help you today all right i love you college park thanks for coming god bless you